Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters' 90-minute bottomless brunch can be added to the purchase of any entree for an additional $20. Bottomless options include mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and Bud Lights. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the delivery, a swing and a high fly ball deep to left field. Schwarber's going back. He's onto the track looking up. It's gone. Joey Manessas has doubled. Now he's homer. It's 2-0 Nationals. 3-1 pitch. Swing and a drive the other way by Harper. Backhead's call. It's over his head and it's over the wall. Deep up into the seats. Harper an opposite field home run. And this game is tied at 2. And the pitch swung on. Hit in the air to deep left. Back goes Cole, warning track at the wall. He leaps, can't get it. It is gone. Goodbye. An opposite field home run for the left-handed hitting Nick Maton. It's now the Phillies six and the Nationals two. And now Brogdon sets. Here's the pitch to Cruz. Swing and a miss. He struck him out with a changeup. And the game is over. And the Phillies have clinched themselves a series win over the Nationals. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, September 11, 2022, along with MassInSports.com, Nats Insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Unlike the Nats' 5-3 loss at the Phillies on Friday night, during which there were zero walks the entire game, we on Saturday evening did have some walks between the Nats and the Phillies. Quite a few walks, in fact, issued by Eric Fetty. Four walks in three and two-thirds innings. We also had some home runs. Five total homers in the game, but four of them were by the Phillies in what ended up being an 8-5 loss for the Nats in Game 2 of this three-game series. The Nats, who had been 4-3 and three on their daunting 10-game road trip, now are 4-5 and five on the trip. Nats fell to a major league worst of 49-91. and 91. There is encouraging news on Mackenzie Gore. We'll get to that later in the show, but Mark, Eric Fetty on Saturday evening, quite bad for a second time in three starts. He now has made four starts. Since coming off the 15-day injured list, he in starts one and three was good. He in starts two and four has been bad. And I suppose that, in a nutshell, is Eric Fetty. Exactly. This is who he is. Every time you think there may be something moving in the right direction, he lays another egg like this, and it's the same things that happen to him. It's walks, long counts, inability to put hitters away, 
And the next thing you know, his pitch count is so high that they're pulling him in the fourth inning. And he wasn't helped by his defense in this game. We're going to get to that because this was their sloppiest defensive game in a while, mostly because of one player who hasn't been usually a part of their defense here lately. But there's still a lot to put on Fetty's shoulders because he had opportunities to get out of some of these innings. He gave up a lot of hard contact. He issued, like you said, the four walks. And he threw a pitch to Bryce Harper that I do not understand why he threw. And it led to actually some interesting comments from Davey Martinez afterwards about what the intention was there on a 3-1 pitch with two outs and first base open to one of the best hitters on the planet and a guy who literally owns Eric Fetty since he came here to the Phillies. So I want to get into that here with you at some point. Yeah, so let's do that. Eric Fetty officially for the game, four runs, three and two-thirds innings, gave up five hits, a homer, two doubles, and two singles. He issued the four walks. He had just one strikeout, and he threw a lot of pitches and a lot of balls. Three and two-thirds innings, 79 pitches, 42 strikes, versus 37 balls. I mean, this is about as bad as it gets from Fetty. I mean, we have seen him do this where he cannot find the plate. He gives up a lot of hard contact, like Mark said, and it's just this like slow plotting performance. And it feels like the first three innings take three hours because that's just how it can be with Fetty when he's off like this. Specific to the Bryce Harper homers. So two run Phillies third. Fetty in the inning gave up a two out, two run opposite field home run to Bryce Harper to left field to tie the game at two. 403 feet per stat cast. The homer was Bryce's sixth career home run off Fetty. The two went to high school together. I'm sure a lot of you listening already know that, but uh, each guy attended Las Vegas High School. But do tell, what did Davey Martinez have to say about the Fetty pitch to Bryce Harper that resulted in the homer? So to set the backstory there, okay, there's two outs, a runner on third, and here comes Bryce Harper. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm sure others are thinking the same thing. Well, where's the intentional walk sign, right? He owns Fetty over the course of their respective careers. First base is open, just put him on. And they don't do that. And now it appears they're trying to pitch around him. And so the count is three and one. And once it gets to three and one, I again think to myself, Okay, well, now you put the four fingers up, just let him go to first, right? No, he didn't. He tried to throw him a changeup on a 3-1 count. All of the pitches prior to that point were outside. They're staying away from him, clearly. This one ends up getting enough of the plate, and Bryce blasted to left field for the home run. And so I asked Davey Martinez after the game, why throw that pitch? Why pitch around him? And Davey's answer is essentially saying, we did not want him to throw a strike. The plan going in, they had discussed this prior to the game. You're not going to let Bryce Harper beat you. You're going to pitch around him in a situation just like that. If you get to a 3-1 count, then keep throwing fastballs out of the zone. Maybe he chases it. Maybe he doesn't. And you walk him, so be it. But don't go throwing changeups. Don't try to make a competitive pitch. He even said, make a non-competitive pitch. So, okay. To which I then followed up with Davey. and said, well, then why not intentionally walk him if that's the case? You know, I told myself, you know, these guys got to understand the game. They got to be smart. I mean, I'm not going to walk him, you know, six times, hold my fingers up. We, we talked about it when we got in there. So um, it's just a, just one of those mistakes. I got to disagree there. <laughs> okay. I understand it's a growing season. You're trying to get some of these guys to learn. You want to give them opportunities to show what they've picked up on. But you know what? At some point, the message doesn't get through. And beyond that, everybody in the planet knew that you're not going to pitch to Bryce Harper in that spot. There's no reason to. If you're trying to play a competitive game of baseball, you're not just going to give him a chance. You're going to put him on base. Why leave it in your pitcher's hand, in your catcher's hand? Stick the four fingers up, especially when you get to the 3-1 count. 
Isn't that what managing is supposed to be? It is. So there are a few things to that. Number one, the irony that Fetty threw a changeup and Davey has been begging his pitchers all year to throw changeups. And Fetty does that here and it results in disaster. I think it's kind of funny. I think one of the quirkier things about this year is how often Davey has like pleaded with his pitchers to throw more changeups. I feel like there's a story behind this of like, wow, I can't remember a manager ever being that specific about one pitch from like the entirety of his pitching staff from which he wants to see more over the course of a season. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of weird and strange stuff with the Nats when it comes to their pitchers. And these guys struggling, and these guys getting worse, and things not making sense. And this, to me, is like just another brick in the wall of that. Like, why are you playing little games of trying to, quote-unquote, evaluate Eric Fetty or test him, you know, give him like a pop quiz. Ooh, can you execute this pitch? We're not going to call an intentional walk. We want to see if you can do this. Like he's a veteran at this point. You more or less know what he is, but that's strange and bizarre to me. I'm with you. Like if you're going to walk him, walk him, you know, and if you're that concerned about him hitting a homer, then don't say, well, let's see if he can execute this pitch. You have had ample opportunity to evaluate Fetty and see if he can execute pitches. Okay. And by the way, he wasn't executing like any pitches in this game. That is strange. And there's a lot with this team when it comes to its pitchers that is strange and that you call into question. And like I said, I think this is just like another little item to add to an already lengthy list of items. Yeah. And specifically here, you say, oh, you're going to let him try to execute it. Let's be clear. He wasn't asking him to execute a pitch in the zone. He was asking him to execute a pitch that's purposely supposed to be out of the zone. So they're trying to walk him. So just walk him. Don't let him have the opportunity to make a mistake and hit a home run. Go ahead and put him on base. But yes, there have been things over the course this year. You mentioned earlier how often they're saying we want more change-ups from them and then they don't do it. And you're like, well, why aren't they doing it? Why is the message not getting across? I don't really know how to explain this one. Is this on the manager? Is it on a pitching coach? Is it on the staff? Where is the disconnect here for things that are clearly being discussed prior to a game. And then when the game actually takes place, it's not being applied within the game. It's one thing to get beat because you aren't executing your pitches, whatever. But it's another thing to be not following through with what the already mapped out game plan is, to not be listening to what your coaching staff is telling you to do. And is it because they're ignoring it? Is it because they're forgetting it? Is it because they're just not capable of doing what they're being asked to do? I don't know, but that's been a recurring theme all year, and it doesn't speak well of anybody that's involved in that equation. Not the pitchers, not Davey Martinez, not Jim Hickey. One of the things that I think really stands out about this year, and I think it's highlighted maybe by the Austin Voth scenario more than anything, is that there seems to be something systemically wrong here, especially when it comes to this team and developing pitchers. Like there seems to be something that is fundamentally off to where so much has gone so wrong. And then in the case of both, right, a guy leaves you off having been bad for you for years and in an instant is so much better with another team. How and why does that happen? I mean, let's take a step back now. Eric Fetty has gotten appreciably worse as this season has gone on. Josiah Gray getting worse as this season has gone on. Patrick Corbin is a mess for a third consecutive season. The only guy who's getting better is Anibal Sanchez, which I can't believe that I'm saying, but that's actually the truth, at least right now. But like, here we are once again, and we've had this conversation before. Pitchers don't get better. They get worse. 
Okay, like it's one thing if guys don't get better under your watch, (laughs) but when guys get worse, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Second straight year that Eric Fetty over his first nine or 10 starts is good, and then the numbers crater, and the numbers have cratered for Eric Fetty. His ERA for the season now is at 547. This off his ERA over his first 10 starts this season, having been at 333. Why and how is that? You know, Josiah Gray, ERA now over five. Why and how is that? And you could say, well, maybe these guys just aren't very good. And yeah, I guess you can say that. But off what has happened with both, I think you call everything into question. And I think you wonder, like, what is going on here behind the scenes? And I guess in this case with Fetty right in front of our eyes, things just don't add up and it doesn't feel right. It feels like something is off. Yeah, I think when this season ends, there needs to be some real serious evaluation from everybody in the organization about pitching in particular and what has gone wrong and what they can do about it. And is it messaging? Is it coordination? Is it execution? Is it just not having good pitchers? Whatever the reasons they can find, they need to delve into this really. And they need everybody to be involved in it. That's the coaching staff, the analytics staff, the front office. Everybody has to be involved in this and try to figure out what they can do to be better. Yes, in the long run, they're going to be better when they have better pitchers. But as we've been talking about for a long time, they're not all going to be, you know, blue chip number one potential aces. There are going to be mid of the rotation, back of the rotation guys that you need to develop and bring the best out of. And as you're saying there, they have not at all done a good job of bringing the best out of players. We're not asking them to be great, but you're asking them to be at least competent and improve over time. When you see the same things happening over and over over the course of several years, or in some cases actually getting worse, that's a reflection of something that's not going right. And of course, another irony to all of this is what has this organization preached forever? Starting pitching, starting pitching, you know, the foundation upon which our success is built is starting pitching, right? Mike Rizzo, we are a starting pitching first team, et cetera, et cetera. And yet you could argue the team has been at its worst in that department when it comes to developing guys more than any other department in recent years. I mean, the organization is not developing starting pitching. It's not happening. And this season is another example of this. Like it's not changing. And You know, we'll see what happens with guys like Gray and Cade Cavalli and Mackenzie Gore, but I don't think anyone feels great about things right now. I don't know how you can. And as excited as we all want to be for guys like Cavalli and Gore, raise your hand if you are certain that those guys are being developed properly or will be developed properly. How can you have extreme confidence in that right now? We all hope for that, and maybe it is the case that that will be the case. And maybe these guys end up being so good that it doesn't matter how they are developed. But, you know, if it ends up being like a 50-50 thing where, okay, Cavalli will be great, but he has to be developed in the proper way. Do you trust the organization to develop him in that proper way? What do you have to point at over the last eight to 10 years to make you say, yeah, they'll get it right with him? I don't know how you feel great confidence in that right now. Look at the list of homegrown pitchers since Steven Strasburg. You're going to be looking for a long time trying to find somebody. Fetty is probably the best of them. And that tells you everything you need to know right there. Now, you're hoping that these last few years of drafts, that the tide is going to turn and that Cavalli once healthy, Gore once he's healthy, Gray as he gets more experience, that that's going to create this whole new generation of quality starting pitching here. But 
there's a track record here. And, it, and it's not just under Davey's watch. It's not just under Jim Hickey's watch. This goes farther back. Several managers, several pitching coaches, several farm directors. A lot of people have been involved over the last seven, eight years, and none of them have been able to develop a even middle of the pack homegrown starting pitcher. That's a problem. It's why this team is going to lose over 100 games this year, and it's why they blew the whole thing up, because they did not develop any of this over the years while they had Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin, Gonzalez, Zimmerman, all of them up here. It's been a long-term problem that there's probably not a a short-term fix to. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Segura down the line at third. Maton away from first. Here it comes. Swinging the ground ball towards short. Abrams up with it to second for one. Hernandez throws the first. Diving into first base and he's out. Sosa tried to dive in there and he's out. On a 6-4-3 double play. The Phillies are going to see about challenging this. Upon review, the call at second base is confirmed. The runner is out. The call at second. First, at first base is overturned. The runner is safe. Philadelphia retains the challenge. Well, we mentioned the Nats defense in this game. Cesar Hernandez on Saturday evening was the Nats starting second baseman. And number six batter, Luis Garcia, was not the Nats starting second baseman for this game. And Cesar Hernandez in the Phillies' two-run fourth had one of the worst defensive innings I think I've ever seen a player have in an inning in which the player is not charged with an error. This was something else would happen with Cesar Hernandez in the Phillies' two-run fourth. So Cesar on a flyout by Garrett Stubbs to deep right center field with runners on first and second did not throw to third base upon receiving the throw 
from center fielder Lane Thomas. And so Gene Segura advanced to third base. I don't quite get why Cesar didn't make the throw, but he didn't make the throw. The next batter was Edmundo Sosa. He hit a one-out grounder that should have resulted in a 6-4-3 double play, but Cesar made an errant throw to first baseman Luke Voigt, pulling him off the bag. Sosa initially was ruled out, but then upon replay review via a Phillies challenge was ruled safe. A run scored on that play. And then the next batter, Brandon Marsh, smashed a two-out RBI double off the right field wall. And on that play, we had yet another poor throw from Cesar Hernandez. His relay throw to catcher Riley Adams was on one hop and pulled Adams behind home plate. So three issues with Cesar Hernandez in this inning, all regarding throws that were or were not made. He wasn't charged with an actual error because you can't assume a double play and you can't assume an out at home plate. And then what is so funny, and the baseball gods, man, they work in some quirky and funny ways in a Phillies two-run fifth. So in the next inning, Cesar gets charged with an actual error, a throwing error. Cesar on a leadoff grounder off the bat of Bryce Harper committed a throwing error from a shifted position in shallow right field. So it was almost like you deserved a throwing error in the last inning. You weren't charged with one. And so the gods deemed that you would commit one in that inning. And what's interesting about that play is this. And if you have the game on DVR, I urge you to watch this. Bryce Harper on that play was barely running. Bryce was doing his thing of lollygagging it down first base. And Cesar makes the bad throw, and then Harper, I guess, picks up his running, but he ends up being safe at first. But it was interesting watching that. Harper was barely running, and yet Cesar makes the bad throw, and uh, Bryce winds up at first base. So really, you have, over the course of two innings, four major instances of Cesar Hernandez's throwing in some way standing out. Obviously, not a good defensive game for him. First of all, where's Jonathan Papelbon when you need him, right? (laughs) Yeah, it is funny how these things work out. The crazy thing to me about the fourth inning, the three consecutive batters, three consecutive balls in play, if he just makes one of those throws, well, any one of them, the inning will ultimately be over without anybody scoring. All he has to do is make one of the three. He didn't have to make them all. They end up with two runs, of course, scoring on them. And the first one on the long fly out to Lane Thomas, and you said he didn't throw it to third. He didn't. He also could have thrown to first. The trailing runner was caught in no man's land and could have been doubled up. He had three bases to choose from to throw it to. Two of them, he would have gotten out and he'd throw it to the only base where there wasn't anybody running to to get them out. So that was bizarre. We talked to him afterwards. He didn't say a whole lot except something to the effect of, you know, I've always said that the only people who don't make errors are those sitting in the stands watching the games. Basically saying, hey, look, everybody who plays the game makes errors. And yes, that is true. Of course, everybody makes errors. Nobody's perfect. But not many major leaguers make four defensive mistakes in the span of six batters. There were four defensive mistakes by Hernandez. Now, why was Hernandez at second base in this game? Luis Garcia got a day off. I know some people are asking, what does he need a day off for? David Martinez has been really trying here down the stretch to give everybody, C.J. Abrams, Ildemaro Vargas, Luis Garcia, some days off, give him a breather. He'll be back in there on Sunday. That is the plan. Yes, they're young, but... He wants to make sure they're not getting worn down too much. So that's why Garcia wasn't in there. Who knows what would have happened if Garcia was in there? We know he has his issues as well defensively, though he's been a lot better at second base lately. But for a guy who's had a really rough year all around, Cesar Hernandez, finally started to hit on this road trip, for him to get a chance to go back to second base again and have that much of a direct negative impact in the field, boy, that's pretty discouraging. 
Yeah, look, at this point, okay, and I mean this with all due respect, the less we see of Cesar Hernandez, the better, all right? It hasn't worked. It's over. I know he's had some hits lately, okay? And I know that the Nats, in a lot of ways, are like, who else are we going to play? I understand that, but this has not been a good experience, and, you know, to me, he shouldn't be playing unless you, like, absolutely have to play him. So, you know, if Luis Garcia is nursing some ailment or he genuinely is fatigued, okay, fine. Otherwise, Let's have Luis at second base as often as possible the rest of the season. Now, Cesar Hernandez's throwing was not the only throwing issue for the Nats in this game. Ildemora Vargas had a throwing error in this game. He, in the bottom of the sixth, committed a one-out throwing error on a grounder off the bat of Reese Hoskins as uh, Luke Voigt at first base did not catch Vargas's one-hop throw. Uh, Vargas, though, in this game did go two for four with an RBI double and a single. He and the Nats two-run seventh had an RBI double down the left field line to cut the Nats deficit to 7-3. While we are talking defense, I do want to highlight yet another super impressive play by C.J. Abrams at shortstop. You know, this is becoming almost a nightly thing where C.J. Abrams makes at least one defensive play that makes you go, wow. So uh, C.J. in this game, starting shortstop, number nine batter, one for four with a single. He, in the bottom of the first, made a tremendous defensive play. Bases loaded, one out. Thank you, Eric Fetty. Gene Segura hits a bouncer up the middle. The pitch, swinging a bouncer up the middle, fielded by Abrams, steps on second, throws to first, out at first, out at first, a spectacular double play to get the Nationals out of the inning, Abrams lunging to his left to get it up the middle, somehow maneuvering to get to the second base bag and throw all in one motion to first to get the double play. And I will credit Luke Voigt, we have been all over him for his lack of great catches at first base, he on this play made a good backhanded catch while fully extended himself. But I, on this play, counted like four or five really impressive specific things that Abrams did on the play. Again, if you have this game on DVR, you can look up the highlights online. Like each item from Abrams on that play was so impressive. This guy is a real treat to watch at shortstop. It really was such a thing. Like you said, the number of things he had to do right on the play. It's one of those plays that you watch and you're almost like cringing throughout it because you're expecting something disastrous to happen. And then when he completes, you're like, oh, my God, how did he pull that thing off? At first, I'm thinking, OK, he's not going to get to the ball. Then he does get to the ball. Then I'm like, well, ooh, he's going to try to flip it to second. That's not going to work. No. Oh, he's going to try to take it himself. Yikes. Look out now. Oh, he's going to try to complete the double play and throw it. He did and throws in the dirt and void. Oh, what? he got it. What? <laughs> they pulled it off. More and more with each passing day, it's hard not to be impressed with this. And we talked about the other night, is he their best defensive shortstop or potentially their best shortstop since who? And I said, Danny Espinosa is the only one I can think of. And he wasn't really a shortstop here. He was more of a second baseman. A long way to go for him. But with each passing day, he is doing something that makes you say, wow, there is both athletic skill there, which you have to have naturally, but there's also baseball instinct. There is body control. There is the smarts, the understanding of it all. And there's just the execution of it that only comes from practicing a lot of these things over and over again. It's really hard not to be impressed with what we've seen from him out there. If you watch him get to balls, it's not just that there is a speed with which he gets to balls. There's almost like a ferocity with which he gets to balls. There's like a violence with which he gets to balls. And it reminded me of something that Mike Rizzo said about C.J. Abrams, and that is he's quick twitch. 
And that's become a real buzz phrase in sports over the last like five or six years. Like there's a difference between being fast and being quick twitch, i.e. quick twitch muscles. But the truly elite athletes have that quick twitch. You know, like the great receivers in the NFL aren't just fast, they're quick twitch. Like you think about a guy like Tyree Kill with the Dolphins. And Abrams is quick twitch. Like I now clearly see what Mike Rizzo was talking about. I don't know if Abrams played other sports. I can tell you this, if he did, he probably was great at him because he seems like this great all-around athlete. But, you know, it's one thing to be fast, like running from first to second, you're fast. This guy's more than that. This guy has an athleticism. This guy moves with a precision that's really rare. And you saw that on this play on Saturday night. You've seen that in other plays as well. Like I said, him moving so quickly to get to balls, especially like balls up the middle, we're seeing that. You really can't say enough about him defensively. The offense hopefully will come around. It feels like it's starting to. But the defense to me is there. You know, like this is what a true high-level defensive shortstop looks like. C.J. Abrams. Yeah. And on top of all those things you just mentioned, he's also got the fundamentals down. So he combines that athleticism, that quick twitch, all that stuff you're talking about with good footwork, with understanding on the play the other night in the hole, how to reposition his shoulders, set himself up to make a good throw. It's all those things that we've seen so many infielders over the years. You can see like the wheels spinning in their head as they're trying to make it happen. Remembering what do I need to do? Where do I need my feet to be? Where do my shoulders need to be? Where does the ball need to be? And instead, he already has it committed to muscle memory. That to me is a great sign that he has worked hard over the years to develop all those things so that now he can use his athleticism to his advantage and already know that all the other fundamental stuff is going to put his body in the right position to make those plays. And with all of the defensive struggles for the Nats at shortstop this season, first with Alcides Escobar, then with Luis Garcia, this juxtaposition of what you had with those two guys versus what you now have with Abrams. I mean, it really is night and day. And so I think it makes you appreciate Abrams even more because we know what was not long ago for the Nats at shortstop. So offensively for the Nats on Saturday night, look, the Nats did hit once again. The Nats finished the game with five runs, 11 hits. Nats worked two walks, two for nine with runners in scoring position. I mentioned Ildemar Vargas having a couple of hits. Lane Thomas once again had a good game. He was an ad starting center fielder and number one batter, three for five with two RBI singles and another single. Joey Manessis was back to being Joey Fourbags. Manessis on Saturday night, he had in the top of the first a one-out opposite field double, and he had in the Nats two-run third a one-out two-run homer to left field. Now, this was a Citizens Bank ballpark specialty, just 354 feet per stat cast, but a homer is a homer. Manassas did do that. But, you know, it's funny, and I know we've had many instances of this this season. So the Nats on Saturday night out hit the Phillies 11-9 and yet lost 8-5. I mentioned the home runs at the top of the show. Five home runs in the game overall. Nats hit one. Phillies hit four. This really has become a familiar theme, especially it feels like in games against the Phillies this season. The Phillies may not total a ton of hits. The Phillies on Saturday evening had nine hits. But the Phillies hit home runs. The Phillies hit a number of home runs on Saturday evening. And as we know so well, when you do that, that affords you, you know, making outs in other ways and not piling up hits in other departments. Because when you're homering, you're putting yourself in a great way to win. And the Phillies on Saturday evening, nine hits, but eight runs, thanks to those four home runs. And you know what the home run disparity is between the two teams in the head-to-head games this year? It's now Phillies 32, Nationals 9. 
in 14 games. Now, would you be surprised to hear that the record of those games is Phillies have won 12, the Nationals have won two. Gee, what could the difference be? Why have the Phillies won so many games? Because they hit the ball out of the park like crazy, especially in this ballpark. It was on display as much as you're ever going to see it in this game. It's frustrating to watch because, yeah, the Nats do some things good offensively, but it takes so many things to go right for them to score runs and bunches. Now, they've done it to their credit on this road trip. For the most part, they have done it quite a lot. But it's so frustrating when it requires that much for you and the other team all it takes is a walk and then a 457-foot Schwar bomb into the back bullpen in right center field, which is what the Phillies do. And in the long run, the Nats need to have some power in their lineup. Now, I know they had a couple guys who hit for power that are no longer with them. As they move this thing forward and they're building a lineup for the future, they've got to make sure the power is a part of it. It's very hard in today's game to win without it, although I guess we'll see when the shift is outlawed next year. Maybe that does lead to uh, more runs being scored via singles and doubles. I was just going to say, you know, for all this talk about the shift and uh, how it's been, you know, the plague on society and how it causes guys to try to hit home runs, there's a reason guys try to hit home runs, and that's because it's the most efficient hit you can get is the home run. It's like shooting threes in the NBA. So you can outlaw shifts. I still don't know that that's going to totally make it so that guys all of a sudden are like, all right, launch angle, who cares? Let me go back to trying to hit like it's 1984. Like, I think the homers are where it's at from both a player perspective, because you get paid for homers, and from a club perspective, because of, again, the efficiency of the home run, right? One hit guarantees you at least one run. So I don't know. I mean, you know, this thing of like shifts are gone, and we're going to go back to having balls in play all over the place. I don't know about that. We'll see. I think you're still very much incentivized to swing for the fences because the other thing too is when you swing for homers and swing for launch angle, when you connect, it's not just that you connect on homers. That's also how you can hit doubles, you know, and like doubles and homers are what you're aiming for here. So, you know, I think that's a part of it too. The Nats bullpen on Saturday night, five relievers combined to allow four runs, two earned and four into third innings. Mark mentioned the Shore bomb. This was inhumane, what Kyle Schwarber did to Corey Abbott. Bottom of the eighth, a one-out first pitch solo home run to right center field, 457 feet for StatCast right there. We had a Brandon Marsh leadoff homer of Jordan Weems in the bottom of the sixth. Weems' very first pitch of the game gets mashed by Brandon Marsh for a 7-2 Phillies lead. We had Andres Machado in the bottom of the fifth, giving up two runs, both of which were unearned. He gave up a two-out, two-run opposite field home run to Nick Maton to left field for a 6-2 Phillies lead. I mean, you know, the Phillies remain one of these teams where you're like, okay, are you ever going to actually put it together and be a great team, have a great season? Well, the Phillies this season are having a pretty good season in what is a tough National League East But man, one thing they do do is hit home runs. And like, if there's one thing, if there's like one change you can make to the Nats for next year, I almost feel like the change would be hit more homers because that right there, that one fix, that one alteration could actually lead to significantly more success. When you don't homer, it is so hard to win. And we obviously have seen that with the Nats this season. Yeah, it does make up for a lot. I think there's a few things in the sport that you can say, okay, if you just have this, it can overcome a lot of other weaknesses. Obviously, Great pitching can overcome a lot. Great defense can make a difference. But yeah, you're right. From an offensive standpoint, if you hit a ton of home runs, it can overshadow and make up for a lack of uh, clutch hitting, can make up for a lack of speed. It can even 
you know, in the Phillies case, it makes up for their defense because they're not a good defensive team. The Nats are 30th, the Phillies are 29th, <laughs> and they're looking like they're going to go to the postseason in spite of that fact. You look at the Phillies roster overall and you're thinking, this team isn't that great, are they? No, they've got some faults. I don't know if they're really built to win in October, but they're going to get to October. And the primary reason for that is a lineup that mashes. And I think everybody knew going into the year that was going to be the case. Speaking of not hitting home runs, Nelson Cruz was back to being the Nats starting DH and number four batter on Saturday evening. He did have a hit. Uh, It was a single, of course. Top of the third, a two-out opposite field single to right center field. And then came what happened in the top of the ninth inning. So Davey Martinez, who has been mandated by federal law to have Nelson Cruz as the Nats cleanup batter, sees Nelson Cruz come up with the bases loaded two outs and the Nats trailing 8-5. As much as it may not have felt like it, this was a game. The Nats were, as Davey likes to say, battling as the game went on. So Nelson comes up again, bases juiced, two outs, Nats are down by three. A big hit can change everything. And Nelson Cruz strikes out swinging on three pitches to end the game. You know, just when we think that Davey is starting to maybe loosen the reins just a bit on Nelson Cruz being the every game DH and cleanup batter, we get what we got on Saturday evening. Nelson did not play on Friday, is back to playing on Saturday, and good golly, he's right back in there as a cleanup batter. And how about the way the game ended? Cruz in a big spot, bases loaded, strikes out on three pitches like that. It was fitting, wasn't it, that that's how it would come down to that, of course. You know I'm with you on this. We've been discussing this for a while. The only thing I'll say, at least as it pertains to this particular lineup on Saturday, is who else would you have had hitting cleanup out of these guys, okay? The number five hitter was Alex Call. The number six hitter was Cesar Hernandez. Number seven was Ildemaro Vargas, Riley Adams, and C.J. Abrams. So when you have Ruiz now out for the year, he had been hitting in the middle of the lineup. You have Garcia getting the night off. You have Robles, although he's not a great hitter, not playing now either. The options weren't great there. So I don't know how you arrange this. And now you can say, hey, anybody but Cruz. Sure, I get that. But it did feel like this was one of those perfect storms of on this particular night, as annoying as it is to see Nelson Cruz hitting fourth, you look at who's hitting fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth, and you say, well, okay, I guess I do understand why he was hitting fourth. The options are limited, and he didn't have a good game, but given the way he had been going, I mean, you could have put Alex Call there, okay? And now Call went 0 for 4. I mean, Vargas does continue to hit. You could do that. It's not ideal. Nobody's in love with that. But the point here would be Cruz has had a bad season, and in 2022, right now, who do you trust more at the plate, Ildemoro Vargas or Nelson Cruz? And if the answer is the former, then go with the former. You're not fielding a lineup for 2016. You're fielding a lineup for 2022. I know this doesn't really matter. I understand that. But, you know, especially off what we talked about with Fetty and the uh, intentional walk that wasn't to Bryce Harper. I don't know. It's just weird, strange stuff. Like, This insistence on Nelson Cruz as the cleanup batter and DH for every game in the middle of September when you have the worst record in the majors. Like, come on. I I just, I don't understand it. All right. There is good news, encouraging news on Mackenzie Gore. Sounds like we are potentially getting closer to seeing him make his uh, Nats Major League debut here. What is the latest? Yep, he is all set to make a rehab start Sunday for Rochester. That'll be in Syracuse. Hopefully the weather's going to be better there than it is in Philly. I haven't looked at that. But the plan is three innings, probably about 45 pitchers or so. And 
if you do the math and figure out how much time he has and pitching every fifth day, what would that lead to? Davies said ideally he'd get to five innings and 75 pitches before they activate him. So there's a path there where you could see three rehab starts and then maybe two starts in the big leagues before the season is over if they really keep him on a five-day schedule. So still has to cross all those items off the list. He's got to get through this start on Sunday and feel good and everything else. Then he's got to build himself back up. But they have been very encouraged by how he has done and how he's felt. And now you're going to get a chance for him to actually start working on the pitching part of it. And, you know, as we've said all along, do they have to bring him back? No. But I think everybody feels like if they can even just get a couple of starts out of him, it will allow him to go into the offseason knowing that he's healthy, putting together an offseason plan, and then come to spring training next year and just treat it like any normal spring and not still be in, even in his own mind, be in some kind of rehab mode. So you said three rehab starts for Gore. Would the Nats consider doing, say, two rehab starts so he gets an additional start at the major league level, or you don't think so? I think it depends on just how those go. How many pitches does it get up to? How many innings? Normally, you'd say, okay, three innings for the first one, four innings for the second one, five for the third. You know, what it would amount to is, did they feel like he could provide something resembling a real major league start? You don't want to put a guy out there and only be able to go three innings and, you know, have to go to your bullpen that early because let's remember, they are going to be playing games against teams in the pennant race. Mostly they're down the stretch. There's some games against the Marlins left, but I don't think he'd be ready to return by then. So that may have something to do with it. And is it worth it for that third start or would you rather make sure that the two starts he does make He's full go, you know, able to give you five or even six innings. I think they'd rather that, but it'll depend how he does, how many pitches he gets. You know, is he efficient enough? You, they say you go into this and say, we want three innings. Well, sometimes you have a really long inning and next thing you know, you're getting pulled early because your pitch count gets too high. They're going to be very careful with that. So, you know, let's see how it goes Sunday and then progress after that. But my hunch reading between the lines would be three rehab starts and then two starts for the Nats. And Cade Cavalli is getting closer to throwing again. You know, we all kind of presumed his season was over. Is there, in fact, a legitimate chance he might pitch in a game again? Well, he's going to rehab as though he's trying to get ready to pitch again. And then it's just going to be a race with the clock. So they're not going to rush him back from that. It sounds like he should be cleared to begin light tossing early next week. So, you know, again, that's about three weeks to go till the end of the season. Not a lot of time. That to me would be a case like you're saying, he's not really going to be able to go on a full rehab assignment, anything like that. Maybe they would bring him back just to pitch an inning or two and relieve something like that. I don't think they are going to feel compelled to do that, but I do think they want him to at least be throwing and maybe get off a mound, maybe a sim game, something so that he can go into the offseason and also be confident that he's not still dealing with a shoulder issue. A little different than Gore in terms of just not as much time, but I think the there is value in not just saying we're shutting you down, build up like you are rehabbing to come back. And if the clock runs out, then it runs out. But at least you feel better about how you feel going into the offseason. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram as well at Nats chat podcast. You can get yourself or someone who you know a Nats chat podcast t-shirt by going to Nats chat podcast dot square dot site if you're listening to this podcast on apple podcasts or on spotify please consider giving the podcast a five-star rating uh, the five-star ratings help us out a lot and are 
Very much appreciated. Nat's chat is on the radio on Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings at 9 on 106.1 ESPN in Richmond. You can listen online at ESPNRichmond.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nat's chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nat's Chat Podcast. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.